Hey guys, my name is Ben Berman and welcome to the Starting It Up podcast where I interview all types of entrepreneurs uncovering actionable steps and inspiration that you can use to build your business, your side hustle, whatever it is that you're trying to create and live the life you've always wanted. On this episode, we talk with David Segura. David and I met a couple years ago when I was interning at Rumi. He was an investor in the company, uh, ended up joining as a chief strategy officer and was my manager while I was there. So we worked really closely together, learned a ton from him. It was great to catch up. David has had a really interesting entrepreneurial path, going from being an employee to a founder to an investor, and now back to leading the charge at another startup. Uh, it was a really insightful conversation. A ton of value bombs are dropped throughout, so I highly recommend anyone uh, who's interested in starting a company, interested in investing, to take a good listen and and see if you can find anything uh, that can help you out in your own journey. So I hope you guys enjoy this. Here it goes. All right, guys. How's it going? Uh, welcome to the podcast. Today we have David Segura, who is uh, actually done a ton of things. He was the founder and CEO of Giant Media. Uh, he ended up selling that company. He uh, then went into angel investing, is invested in dozens of startup companies. And right now he is the COO at uh, Carbon. Um, it's a stable coin. Uh, and I'm going to you know, turn it over to you, David. Tell us a little bit about your, your background, how you got into um, you know into startups, why you started your first company, and then bring us you know kind of up to speed into where you are right now, and and uh, just tell us a little bit of that journey. Yeah, sure, sure. I won't go too far back, but I'll just say like I guess it started in college. Um, went to University of Chicago, enjoyed it a lot out there, but it was just too damn cold. So <laughs> the uh, you know basically everyone um, in university, at least my friends, they either wanted to be management consultants or they wanted to be investment bankers and originally i'd gone to school thinking i was going to be a lawyer but i thought that sounds more interesting let me try my hand at business so to speak so i became a management consultant and moved out to la to do that worked for about a year and a half at a firm that at the time was called towers parent uh global firm good experience in retrospect definitely grateful but yeah i didn't like it very much and if I'm being candid, they didn't like me very much either. And what I realized oh, yeah. then Why's is that, that, I don't know, I'm just like not a, like a great fit for like a super large global company. In other words, I tried to contribute, did my thing, had a pretty good relationship with the senior people, including the people that ran the office. But peers liked me too. They thought I was funny, but my immediate supervisor just did not like me because I would always like challenge them and question what they were doing Yeah, and uh, wanted to be included more, wanted to go on client pitches. And, you know, looking back on it, I mean, just to be fair, uh, they were probably right. Like, what could I really do? Um, at that point, coming right out of school, I don't think I was qualified to like pitch Fortune 500 companies. But nonetheless, you know, like I said, I learned I learned what I liked and what I didn't as a professional. Uh, kind of negotiated like an exit that worked for all sides there, um, and then immediately knew that I had to jump into startup. Not just because I wanted to, but I just had a feeling like with an environment that was going to be less authoritarian, uh, a little more freedom, um, I'd probably thrive. And I was right. So that's what I did. I jumped into that in my next role. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, very cool. And, you know, it's definitely it's definitely interesting to see how, you know, you go into this environment thinking that like you went in because everyone around you was going in. And then, you know, once you're there, you realize, yeah, this isn't for me. And, and you had a lot of self-awareness to, to understand that and, and jump to the next thing. Um, so could you talk a little bit about your time then at Giant Media? You know, what was it like to to start a company, you know, build it up to have, you know, dozens of employees mm -hmm. and then eventually exit, um, you know, successfully? Well, what was that experience like? Sure, sure. Like um, basically I had two startup jobs immediately after consulting. Um, one was called Twistbox Entertainment and then the one after was at Comedy.com, which is weirdly enough been resurrected, I understand, as an influencer network. Nice. But back in the day, the best way to think about comedy.com was kind of like an imitation of Funnier Die. Uh, Funnier Die is, you know, it's a media business, so it's struggling maybe now. But back in the day, they were they were cool. It was backed by Will Ferrell. It was kind of like his brand in a way. And they even had like a terrestrial show on, on cable with HBO. So long story short, I was young then, but I still saw the writing on the wall. We had raised like, I think, $5 million or so in a Series A. I really liked the team. I liked the CEO, fellow U Chicago guy. Um, much older, but nonetheless, a Chicago guy. Uh, but I knew that it was going to be an uphill battle to get more funding. And so kind of knowing that, I remember, I think the year was uh, 2009. Yeah. And right around April, I asked for a raise. <laughs> and he was like, no, are you crazy? Like, look around you. Like, this is, we're just trying to survive here. And I, you know, I thought that's a reasonable answer. But just right there and then I thought, 
well, I'm out of here, uh, but I don't have like the finances or the wherewithal really to just quit and be done with it. So instead, I started experimenting. I started doing side projects. And I remember one of them in particular, I started basically creating viral pages on Facebook. Um, some of them included pages that I still have to this day, like Jello shots, um, flipping the pillow to get to the a pillow to get to the cold side. Oh wow, well, that's kisses. you. Yeah, wow, that was me. Okay. So I had about <laughs> yeah, thirty million fans. Um, had the Jello shots oh, domain, sheesh. and the business model was totally improvised. But what I was doing was hitting up all my fellow publisher friends, whether it was College Humor or small sites that don't even exist today, and charging them around ten cents per video view. So in plain English, what would happen is they would send me a piece of content, mostly videos. I would, quote unquote, publish that through these pages. And the way to think about it is that if you had 30 million fans, no matter what the content was, even if it sucked, um, you would get somewhere between a 2 to 4% click through. So that's essentially how I was monetizing it. Things were going well for like three months. Um, I thought it was going to be like the easiest thing in the world. But as you know, uh, startups are never easy. There's always something. <laughs> and sure enough, Facebook just did this random announcement at some point and just said, you know, you're in violation of terms of services. And they just stripped my publishing rights from almost all my pages, except weirdly enough, Jello Shots, which I, again, I still have. <laughs> um, so when that happened, I was pissed and a little sad. And I didn't really know exactly what to do next. But I got encouragement from a friend of mine uh, who had invested in this in this company which I jokingly called Dorcia Media. Um, Dorcia being the restaurant that Patrick Bateman, a character in American Psycho, could never get a reservation to. Um, anyways, long story short, <laughs> um, that business folded and he was actually very chill about it. And so that made me feel a little bit better about both the failure and what I should do next. So he kind of told me the obvious, a guy named Juan Lee. Um, he was like, you should do the same thing you're doing. Just don't depend on platforms. So it's kind of funny that people are still talking about the same shit now that they were back then. And I got a brutal lesson into what, how Facebook operates and, you know, it's not worth competing with them. So long story short, I started Giant Media. Again, all this while still employed by Comedy.com and um, more or less sought to do the same thing, but do it independently of the platforms. Mm -hmm. So the way that was, especially in the early days, it was more or less just me. I was the only person really doing it. That was getting videos from agencies and publishers and distributing them now to third-party publishers. So in other words, like these were all my friends. And so I would take video content from, let's say, um, Comedy Central or Capital One, and I would distribute that to like my network essentially of buddies all around the world, but mainly in US and in Europe. And then apps started emerging at that time. Facebook was encouraging third-party developers to build on their ecosystem. And I saw the writing on the wall with that too. Um, I wasn't smart enough to like build an app myself, but I was smart enough to know that eyeballs would migrate there. So mm -hmm. I started working with all these different companies, some of which exist today, some of which don't slide car town, a whole bunch of stuff. So what I would do essentially is run an arbitrage. I would take in 10 cents or so, and then I would in turn dish out five cents to, um, these different parties for playing ball over time. I professionalized it and I started basically uh, working with larger companies um, that were kind of predecessors to giant media mm -hmm. that had really strong relationships with big brands. Um, you know, all the big companies out there, whether it's like Nissan, Ford, or American Express. Um, back then, I was really envious of them because I didn't know how to like, you know, sell to brands and have those conversations. But accidentally, we built giant media in a way that focused more on the supply side of the market versus the demand side, in other words, the brands. And so we got really good at negotiating rates, like extremely low. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we would pay as little as two and a half cents and certainly no more than five cents for most of our inventory and kind of lock that in. Wow. So just jumping to the future, we started doing well. And so I had the confidence to quit in November, I think, um, 2009. And that's really when Giant really got going. Um, although I think I had incorporated it a little bit before that. And... Um, then we got a contract with a few companies, one of which was called Feed Company in Hollywood, and they basically agreed to outsource or white label their work to us. So what that meant is that they would go out and do sales. They were the ones that basically got the credit for it, but behind the scenes, it was me mm. and a few friends, including this guy, Matt Koskla, who eventually became the CTO of Giant Media from pretty much the beginning and certainly through the exit. 
So we built a great franchise, eventually decided in somewhat of a ruthless move, if I'm being honest, to cut out all these intermediaries, mm-hmm. large companies like Visible Measures that were venture funded um, to smaller companies that were just very profitable like Feed and then just went directly to the brands and their respective media agencies. So when that happened, we started charging 20 to 25 cents, but we still had those like low rates locked in with wow, publishers okay. and apps because of overhead and other stuff, you know, our margins got cut into. But just to be clear, they were still over 50%. So we were, um, you know, for lack of a better term, bawling when it came to cash flow. <laughs> and people took notice of that. And eventually in 2014, we successfully sold the company to a large, at the time, um, conglomerate, media conglomerate called Ad Knowledge, which, you know, had raised $300 million from growth uh, private equity funds like TPG and JMI. And uh, believe it or not, Nokia which I think may exist, may not. But back then, they were a big deal. So yeah, it was a great outcome for us. We did really well financially. But more importantly, we were really proud, as cheesy as it sounds, like of what we accomplished together. It was like a very close uh, family culture, uh, both the ups and the downs. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really, really great story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a couple of things that I want to follow up on that. You said that you know you were you did all or you began all of this while you were still employed yep. where you were working. What would be your advice to everyone out there who, yep. you know, wants to start something, but they have a full-time job sure. and, you know, they just want to maximize the, all the time and effort that they can, you know, they obviously want to perform well at their current job, but they still want to like really put a lot of time and effort into their side hustle to sure. turn it into something one day. What, what advice would you have to, to people in that position? Yeah. So I feel pretty strongly about this and I know there's people that feel completely differently for me. There's some people that probably feel the same as me, but um, will probably lie about it. And what I mean by that is that almost everyone will tell you, especially like the A student, you know, fellow management consultant types, they'll tell you, that's not ethical. You need to quit your job. And I'm like, yeah, you know, if you're a trust fund kid, then, you know, all power to you, but <laughs> uh, do it full time. But for most people, probably 80% of the population in the United States, that's not really feasible. So, while I do think you owe your employer like a duty and hopefully have enough like, you know, pride of work to do a good job and do right by them, you should in every other waking hour before work and certainly after work, just work your butt off and just put in the hours necessary to, um, you know, build your company up. So that was my objective. I kind of realized in April 2009 through kind of to some extent, I guess, no fault of their own, you know, Dean and the rest of the comedy.com executives as cool as they were and as grateful as I was, weren't going to be able to build my career um, in the way I wanted it to, right? Mm-hmm. And to be honest, deep down, I, I was okay with that because I've always been that way. I wanted to take charge and I was like, okay, it's going to be like every other time in my life, I'm going to have to do it on my own. And so I did. And um, what I needed from them was just a little bit of stability. So I, I worked hard. And then on the side, I just started building this company. Dorcia, you know, within a few months went from being incredible to not and instead of giving up, I started Giant Media. And just to be clear, the reason I called it that is that it was kind of like a private joke. It was just me and like a few other guys helping here and there. And, um, you know, we thought it was hilarious, you know, hilarious or not. Yeah. It was never really meant, you know, to take your word hustle. It was never really meant to like be a big thing. It was actually originally supposed to be for beer money. And then eventually we started doing a little better. So then it was rent money. And then, you know, we decided this should be our full time gig. Um, we never really thought that we would reach like, you know, like tens of millions of dollars in revenue, you know, when, which we did when we exited. Um, it's it's mind blowing. And I guess one comment I'll make, too, is that most entrepreneurs I talk to, when you really poke and prod them and if you're you know getting them at a point where their their guard is down, they'll admit that whether they call it a pivot or not, their idea and their ambitions just kind of multiplied and transitioned probably several times over the course of like their company. I've only met just a few people that had one vision um, and that successfully executed from beginning to end. Extremely few. And uh, even that company eventually ran into trouble. So the reality is like it always starts small and you never know where it can lead. You just have to like be consistent and do everything you can to give yourself a chance to succeed. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. You know, it's just the way it is, you know, for everyone out there, you know, who can, like you said, can't afford to just fully focus on something that doesn't produce them any money. You do have like so many other so much other time or like in your day even if you are working a very demanding job it's just very very possible to do that um and it's also it's also really interesting that you know your point of view the entire time wasn't that i'm trying to build this massive company make a you know 
with a bunch of money. It was like I want to do something that you know I'm interested in, uh, especially the stuff that you do with the Facebook pages. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually just really cool. And, and I always like think about stuff like trying to get involved in, in that kind of thing early on, like when the Facebook groups and the communities were um, or the pages were just like starting to become super popular. Now you go on Facebook and it's like, it's I think it's pretty hard to find a page now. Just the algorithm doesn't really yeah doesn't really prioritize them. So um, it makes a ton of sense that you like saw that before mm-hmm. it actually happened, and we're like, yeah, I need to go and mm-hmm. do this uh, do this my way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's I don't know. I always like think that that kind of foresight is something that you know obviously will help you forever. And just developing that um, I think is such a crucial skill. Yeah, you just have to be comfortable with experimenting with things and like you know just just be honest with yourself like if something isn't working there's no shame in, ch- in revising it and yeah. if that's still not working just dropping it cold turkey i think like kind of like classic american values if you will to some extent at least or like you never quit and um you know grit over like whatever ingenuity but realistically not really like entrepreneurs have, have always just been about like testing things and kind of just like ruthlessly just trying to calculate what will end up working the best and you shouldn't overvalue like your ideas you know at Mm -hmm. the end of the day if like you're building successful business that you know is fulfilling then that's reward enough there's no extra that you get for like uh sticking to the same plan from beginning to end yeah that's how i feel about about it at least for sure and to kind of transition so since you you know had your exit um you ended up you know walking away with you know pretty good amount of money and that allowed you to now start angel investing, yeah. um, which for everyone out there, it essentially means that, you know, you're putting money into very early stage companies, hoping that they 10, 50, 100 X um, on their return. Mm-hmm. And just a follow up question from what you said before, like, so when, when you are making these kinds of investments, like, what's the personality trait that you're looking for? Um, like, how can you tell that someone is a good entrepreneur? Because, you know, now entrepreneurship is very cool and everyone wants to start something. But, you know, maybe there are just some people who you know, might not have it in them. So what are those things that you look for? Mm-hmm. Um, and that you think, you know, are traits that someone needs to have to uh, to be successful when yeah. starting something? Yeah, so I'll say this. I mean, obviously, I, I do my best and it's very hard to tell ultimately when you think about it. But, you know, what I try to identify in founders, you know, male or female, is just, you know, determination, you know, like some level of courage without making it sound too over the top. Um, sticking power, energy, and I think energy especially is like reflected in different ways. Like I've known a lot of people that are more kind of like low tempo, but nonetheless have like what I call a high motor, mm-hmm. meaning you just notice stuff like that. They don't need a lot of sleep or like they send emails at odd hours. I don't think that's for everyone. Don't get me wrong. I don't think you have to do that to be successful, but I do need to know that someone cares about the idea and that ultimately like um, they're going to, you know, kind of stick with it when things get tough because it always does. Yeah. Uh, there is no startup without like risk a profound amount actually in like really challenging times. So personally without, you know, picking fights or casting any stones, I'll avoid naming names, but I'm always very suspicious of like, again, I have a lot of friends like this and I like them in my life. They're very stable people, but you know, people that are very dedicated or very kind of like run by their parents or were either at that moment or earlier in their life. Um, people that kind of prioritize like labels and stuff like that i guess what i'm trying to say is that it's changing again because people are realizing how hard startups are but for a while um you know it became the thing to do in other words if you were a badass lawyer from like some white shoe law firm instead of just being happy with being a lawyer people inevitably were like quitting their high-paying gig to go into startups which on paper is insane but on, on top of that as well just wasn't a good fit in other words, these are people that were doing it for like uh, the achievement, you know, lust, yeah. if you will. And also because it was the prestigious thing to do. And I don't know. I just was always fascinated by it. But sometimes I can usually tell when someone is, is doing it maybe for the wrong reasons. But, you know, ultimately, it doesn't matter what someone's background is, whether they went to, to Stanford or, you know, another type of school. As long as they're serious and they're committed, like that's the first criteria for me. I'm not saying that I have like a perfect... Um, you know, like uh, like an x-ray or something for like what makes a good entrepreneur. But I am looking for someone that's like not dealing in self-deception, like they're being honest with themselves about their strengths and also their limitations. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes a ton of sense. Um, just self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we always hear it. It's like that's just a key, mm-hmm. uh, just a key point. Once you understand yourself, you're able to understand mm-hmm. everything else you do. And if, if you can't understand who you are, you know, how, how can you expect to uh, 
to understand other people, people sure. around you and, and just what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, can you kind of talk a little bit about, you know, some of um, your most prominent angel investments, you know, how you um, kind of how you got connected to these people, like for everyone mm-hmm. out there who, who might want to get into angel investing, who was really interested in startups, who might have like extra money that they've made, you know, in their career. Um, how like what, what advice would you have for them? Um, based off of your like successful experiences um, and and even failures, you know, from from the companies that did fail, yeah, um, what would you those. tell them? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there are. Um, yeah, so there's 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 different ways to read that and to give you like a complicated like case study. Like one of the best outcomes for me ever, like financially investing, was one of my first investments, and it was a company called Laurel and Wolf. Um, so I guess one thing I left out of this interview, like that giant media story, early career story. All that took place in Los Angeles. Okay. And I guess after I sold the company, I, I moved to New York to basically, um, you know, work with the acquiring company and help grow the franchise in Europe. You know, so I did that for a year and a half before moving on to do angel investing. But, you know, as you can imagine, I still have great ties in California, especially Los Angeles. And I've kept abreast of developments there and made investments opportunistically. So Laurel Wolf um, came to me through the co-founder. Um, he was actually a former client at Nissan. And we became like, you know, really close friends actually mm-hmm. over the years. And so he kept pitching me this like weird concept about a marketplace for interior design with the idea being that people like me that didn't have a lot of natural taste could essentially go online, um, kind of almost engage their network of designers um, and basically choose the one that I liked and wanted to work with either in real life or alternatively just let one of them recommend things for me that I could in turn purchase myself. Um, I wasn't thrilled with the concept, not because I didn't think it was a great one, just because I didn't identify much with interior design and, and still don't for that matter. <laughs> but I did agree that it was intriguing. I liked him and I liked uh, Laura, the CEO. And so I ended up agreeing to invest in, in their seed stage round, which I think valued the company at um, 4.1 million post post. So it was like 3 million when mm-hmm. they raised 1.1. So that was cool. And then, yeah, they just hit the proverbial rocket ship through all sorts of tactics, including PR. And she was, I think, masterful at that. So just to get to the point, what ended up happening is that they raised $25.5 million or something like that in their Series B. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember the exact number, but I, it was over nine figures um, that the post-money valuation was. Yeah. Wow. So where things got a little crazy for me is that um, various people tried to buy my shares, which weren't for sale. Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't like a sales tactic. I just didn't need the liquidity. Was it like the the venture investors? It, yeah, okay. venture investors um, that were invested in the company that weren't invested in the company, and that kind of introduced me to I guess something I never. Um, you know, I have to be honest. I, I I didn't even I wasn't even aware of this. I didn't realize that there was like a thriving secondary market that was available both to early stage investors, including angels. So what ended up happening is that a company called um, CRV, which is the acronym for Charles Rivers Ventures. Okay. Um, you know, typical Boston and and and, and uh, you know, Valley Firm. They were the lead on the Series A and I believe they were a participant in the seed stage, but for any number of reasons, you know, stuff happens. Uh, Lauren Wolf chose to let uh, Benchmark, um, with very prestigious VC, yeah. lead their Series B. So, the partner or or the principal there um decided that that wasn't good, so she wanted to basically buy up as much shares as she can get her hands on because she believed in the company. And, you know, I thought, you know what, like, I'll hear them out, even though I'm not that interested. Why not? And so what she ended up doing is offering me to give me literally the post money valuation on some or all my shares. So I sold, you know, 70% of my stake at a markup of like 23.5 X. Wow. And all this took place in less than two years. So that was, you know, phenomenal. Um, long story short, um, you know, again, I'm saying this respectfully because I love um, both the CEO and, and, and the co-founder who uh, left the business around that same time the, of, this, of when I when I cashed out. But it went bankrupt recently, you know, with wow. no fanfare, no announcements even, just quietly. Um, you know, that sucks, obviously. And that means the 30% I was holding are now worth zero, I guess. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that happens, right? And so it just goes to show that, like, you, never, you really never know, like, what the long-term trajectory is. And I've learned to kind of like temper my expectations and also just accept, unfortunately, that venture math is harsh. And that's what it is. It's that most startups will fail Mm -hmm. um, for any number of reasons and that you really are relying on 
the winners to more than cover mm-hmm. your losses. So I've evolved a lot as an investor. And even though I see myself as like down to earth, um, I've definitely become more humble as the years have passed because I recognize like how big a role luck plays in investing. Yeah. Um, and to be fair, and also building a company as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, gotcha. So in terms of, you know, when you shifted from being uh, an entrepreneur to an investor, what, what would you say is like the biggest... Um, What's like the biggest difference between the two sides? Because you are kind of on opposite sides. You know, you do want, sure. like when you do invest in a company, you want relatively the same as, as what the the founder or the CEO wants. Yeah. But oftentimes there is this uh, this difference. You know, your expectation or drive is to get as much money as you can from the company. Um, and they might, you know, feel about it uh, differently. So what have sure. you... What what have you learned like from that and what you know, which which one do you actually prefer? Um it's a good question. Um I'm not sure to be honest what I prefer more, but I yeah. will say that it's incredibly different. Like, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're kind of in the weeds and you're executing. Um, whether you're a founder or, or an exact or even um a, someone on the rank and file, if you're committed, you have an ability to impact things and, and, and own them from beginning to end. But the reality is that when you're an investor, even if you're super involved, like like I am to some extent with some of my startups, mm-hmm. at least to the extent some of them want that, I'm, I'm very hands-on when they want it to be, when they want me to be. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're living vicariously through them. And yeah. to be fair, that's how it should be. I do know some investors in my mind, my opinion respectfully, that kind of overstep their authority. And I don't like that. Um, I don't think that's, that's appropriate. And so I try to you know be mindful of that. Um, to be fair, that kind of worked itself naturally because I'm an angel investor. Mm-hmm. I'm not a VC. I don't have like blocking rights or I can't really terrorize like entrepreneurs the way some VCs do. But, um, you know, I think it's, it's, you ultimately want to be founder friendly and without tooting my own horn, I get that feedback. I do think that as a former founder, uh, people like me because I think I can get into their head in terms of the practical problems they're facing. And instead of just giving them like high level advice, which, you know, a lot of VCs I've read in a textbook or something, I can actually like, you know, work my connections or reach out to people that I think could help solve problems, whether it's something like that or something as simple as fundraising. You know, before you came, actually, I was on the phone with someone in LA that I hadn't talked to in years and they're building kind of like a next generation sort of uh, food journalism enterprise, both video and content. And they've been at it for a few years that produced like an Emmy award winning kind of docu-series and now it's growing and apart from from wanting you know you know money obviously but i think he values like the advice that that i'm giving him mm-hmm. so um is an example like i immediately thought like wow you should be talking to bdmi you know they they're bertelman's venture arm and they actually do like um some of these more esoteric media type bets you know yeah. to help them but an investor in with exactly <laughs> yeah so i like them a lot and i know some of the partners here in new york and i thought yeah I would love to introduce them to Antonio. So I proactively tried to add value and I think I know how because, you know, I've been in the trenches before and um, I think people appreciate that. And to be fair, not everyone does. Not everybody needs that. And I respect that too. Sometimes Mm -hmm. investors like want, I mean, entrepreneurs want help, but as they start to scale the operation, they need it less. And that's completely cool too. Cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, personally follow like jason calacanis quite a bit sure. um and he's for everyone listening he's like one of the most famous like angel investors i uh, invested in like uber facebook oh sorry not facebook definitely mm-hmm. not facebook um yeah, like, definitely uber, yeah. <laughs> uber robin hood uh, yeah and and it all it really is all about like adding value especially if you're someone out there who you know might not have you know deep network and and you do want to get into angel investing whether it's like on crowdfunding sites whether it's on you know actually you know directly uh, giving money to to people um, you know in person and things like that you know always find ways to to add value like however you can um, and that's that's always important people people really appreciate it obviously and it just makes you seem a lot different um, and you could separate yourself from someone who you know isn't it just to you know make some quick money and things sure. like that and um, just another question for on angel investing like when someone pitches you a company um, from your point of view like what do you focus on? Um, to really determine like will I make this investment like how important is uh, kind of like break down how important would be the, is the person and then how important is really like the idea and um, and things like traction uh, mm-hmm. and that yeah it's a good question um, it, I've evolved a lot in the sense like when I look back at giant media like we were kind of a cash flow rich company that was very much in control of its own destiny in other words 
all great qualities, I think, in terms of running a business. But the cold hard truth there is that it wasn't really, in my opinion, venture backable. Mm-hmm. At least it wouldn't have been if you were banking or really kind of needing or hoping for a nine nine figure outcome. And that's not what we got. So the reality is that there are some businesses that kind of lend themselves better to like, you know, proper venture investing versus maybe friends and family, maybe even angel investing. Um, and honestly, a lot of entrepreneurs just don't know the difference. And I think part of that is like just culture. You know, you feel like you're almost like not a real business if you don't need like a ton of money. Mm-hmm. But realistically, you just have to be candid about like what you're building and like what you're trying to accomplish. And, you know, as long as you accomplish your goals, like you can build all sorts of business throughout your lifetime. Businesses that do need a lot of capital because like the market size is that large and businesses that don't need as much. And you're, you're really looking for a few select partners. So just to kind of speak to that, I'm really looking for opportunities that are, I'd hesitate to say moonshot, but like are large in scale. So as an example, like, um, you know, there's a company that I'm basically working, yeah, working at now called uh, Carbon. And it's it's like you mentioned before, it's a stable coin company. And yeah, I like the team enough where I just decided the hell with it, I'll join. And, you know, I'm now serving as a COO. This is a business that is running very lean, but it legitimately does need capital mm-hmm. in order to fund market making operations, in order to enhance relationships with um partners both on the blockchain side of things and DAP side um, around the world, including very heavy contingent in Asia. So there are legitimate and very good factual reasons for needing capital. And there's other businesses that just don't need as much and should never yeah. raise as much. So I think that's really critical for entrepreneurs to like kind of like lean into that. Um, my criteria personally, again, is that I want the market size to be really large. I'm totally comfortable with it being like insanely risky, but the market size has to be like big enough, and large enough to be like interesting and that's what i'm looking to put capital into yeah and what kind of checks do you typically write mm-hmm. you know the size and, and then also like when do you stop like would you mm-hmm. you know do follow-on rounds or, or how's that work yeah so it varies really but i would say like if you wanted to just like check a range it's between 20 to 100,000 that's usually what my initial check is in any given company and there are companies that i've done follow-on rounds with um opportunistically um one thing i will say is that since i tend to write checks in that range I usually don't have like a legal or commercial like um, like right mm-hmm. to invest in follow on rounds. So I either have to have like a great relationship or add enough value to the founders to be able to do that. And like I said, it doesn't always work. Um, one company where it's it seems like it's working out pretty well for me is a company called Grove Collaborative. Um, they were literally just in the news today in Fast Company because um, they released a new product, which I guess allows people to like cut down on on waste uh through doing soap dispensing anyways long story short they're kind of like an organic like costco they sell like method soap and just like high-end organic kind of design led products no food at the moment but stuff like that and now i think as i understand it they're probably going to come out with like in-house labels i invested in that in 2016 and uh, i can't disclose their valuation but Mm -hmm. i can say that it's like just grown tremendously and um, that came through the relationship with, um, you know, VC. So I get a lot of deal flow or referrals to, to those um, and basically entrepreneurs, both through my personal network and then also through networks of investors, mm-hmm. whether it's at the VC level or the angel level. Yeah. And how, how would you join like that kind of a network? Um, you just have to put in time into it, just like anything else. So if you're determined to be a successful angel, I mean, here's the biggest worry like any angel or any investor really should have. Like you're getting deal flow and if you look for it, you'll find it. But without sounding harsh, you have to sometimes wonder if someone's selling you a deal where like they're struggling to raise money Mm -hmm. because maybe the idea is deficient or to be fair, maybe just misunderstood. But either way, there's an issue of some sort or it's a hot deal where you have to like literally fight to get in. And I know it sounds crazy, but there have been situations where you're functionally begging like for them to take your money. Um, I've been in a few of those and those are the deals you want. But oftentimes, in my experience, those are the deals that like sometimes I've been rejected from them. But mostly it's just I just found out too late. Yeah. And so I realized even though I had a huge network of entrepreneurs, um, you know, both, you know, kind of young and old, I was finding out about stuff too late. And I was just like, OK, I'm not as interested in later stage deals. I got to figure out how to do this. And I got advice that I should be talking to VCs. And sure enough, that's exactly what they wanted. I can't speak for them. I really don't know why they refer business to me. But. I suspect it's not just because I'm willing to add value. I suspect it's because a lot of people like literally commonly 
guess my age wrong by about seven, ten years. And it's because I'm just very high energy, I guess. And so I just relate a lot to like young founders. Um, like the guys at Carbon, for example, the co-founders are between ages 20 and 23. All of them, you know, dropped out of school to pursue this project. And yeah, I just identify with like with, with people really well. Yeah. So I think people are trying to leverage me to keep tabs on young founders and they feel like they'll open up to me more than them. And to be fair, they're right. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm easier to talk to than some guy in a suit, I think. Yeah, yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. And when you when you think of like venture, it is typically, you know, very old, much older people, people who have sure are coming from like very formal backgrounds. Um, you know, often they're entrepreneurs, but but often they, you know, have come from, you know, things yeah. like finance, um, you know, lawyers, consultants. I've been surprised. Like you would think that they'd be almost exclusively all former entrepreneurs, but that's just not the case. I mean, there's a lot of partners we can name check right now that are doing fabulous and are former entrepreneurs. And, you know, when you read about them, you know, Mark Andreessen, mm-hmm. you know, Peter Thiel, you name it. But the reality is um, the people that, you know, kind of build operations day to day, just like any companies are more kind of like really brilliant, but nonetheless, mid-level and junior talent. And most of these people, um, again, I want to hesitate because I don't want to sound negative, but I'm just kind of just being, you know, kind of stream of thought with, with uh, my thoughts. Uh, these are people that maybe just got an MBA school. Uh, maybe had a job before. These are people that graduated from Stanford, um, from Harvard or whatever, and they're smart, but they're kind of driven again by the prestige game and just wanting to like prove to themselves and their friends that they're doing something cool. And I found a lot of their advice to be very helpful, but not really coming from a place of like experience, right? And so you always have to like hesitate to like, I don't know, uh, follow through on something that may not be coming from a place of like deep knowledge. So I have an internal bias, but like any human being, like I think everyone's biased towards their experience being more ideal mm-hmm. than someone else's. So I'm open-minded, but VCs are actually a lot more formal than you think, um, despite their best efforts to be chill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what? So what's your opinion on, um, you know, ob- obviously tr- traditionally like getting, um, you know, investing into private companies has been very difficult. Yeah. Um, just the way the laws are written, just the way that you actually need to have, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars yeah. to do it doesn't make it super accessible for most people what do you think of like the new um you know uh, things that are like syndications where it makes it very easy for people to pull their money and invest sure. or uh crowdfunding platforms like what's your thought on that and then what would be the biggest piece of advice you have for someone who's doing you know that route they're not investing like 20k they might be investing like 500 bucks like sure. into a company what you know what should uh should they be doing and and keeping an eye on to um to really learn as much as they can and you know potentially be successful in that okay so it's a lot of info, and I'll, I'll, start, I'll start from the top and try to work my way through it. Um, you know, socially, like, I'm very liberal, but, like, from, like, identification or, like, political standpoint, more libertarian. So I definitely don't agree with the credit investor laws. I understand the logic. They're just trying to protect the market or protect the consumer, maybe, for themselves. But, I mean, let's call it what it is. It's patronizing. Yeah. And it's dated. So Especially in the lottery is uh, is allowed. It's hypocritical. It's hypocritical, yeah. So... I mean, the gist of it is this, right? They're basically saying, you know what? You're too dumb to invest in this like hot, like new project coming out, like by these Stanford grads that everyone's like literally fighting to get into. But you're, you're you are smart enough to to do a lot of. So it is. It's hypocrisy, right? It's just like any. It's like I was gonna say any. I should roll that back and just say like many types of legislation. Um, there's always a reason, and it's usually to benefit some like specific party. So this kind of does benefit VCs, right? In other words, as a cartel of sorts um they probably benefit from restrictive legislation that like prevents the masses from investing and i guess if they were more readily able to invest it could at least in theory um threaten some other domain um this probably wouldn't be true for the best funds right like you're still gonna all the lps are still gonna fight individuals or institutions to get into andreessen's fund or you know the founders fund or whatever but the reality is that this would change things and you know most people that are doing really well financially don't want change so i feel very very strongly that just wherever possible like legislation should be eased and i feel the credit investor rule is something that probably unfairly holds people back and so i'd like to see like other changes there and i welcome any and all improvements there yeah, for sure. And then just uh, for the second part of that question, like say someone is going on a platform like Republic or Seed Invest or, or one of those, and they are making these small investments, uh, you know, they're starting off like what, you know, what should they kind of just how should they go about it to just be smart? And, you know, they 
no one wants to like lose their money, but you d- you definitely lo- do learn a ton even when you lose. Sure. But what can you kind of look out for and just? Well, that's a good point, though. I mean, you will lose. I mean, as I've as I've come to realize now, I mean, just put in perspective. Like when I first, here's what really happened. I became an investor because I was bored. Like in other words, I had sold Giant Media, made more money than I ever thought I would. And then didn't know what to do. So I was working at the acquiring company, but it's just not the same. I have a lot of pride to work and giant media still exists. And, you know, obviously I still wish them well, but the reality was it just wasn't the same. It was no mm-hmm. longer like, I mean, I was going to say life or death. It was never life or death actually, <laughs> but it felt like that. It was a game I played. It's a game we all played and we loved it. And so once that was off the table, we succeeded. It was just very hard to like kind of feel the same way about it again. So I was trying to pursue that, I guess, in some ways through other entrepreneurs that still had that kind of existential like wish, if you will. And um, I started investing as a result. And just by coincidence, I mean, um, even deals I didn't do, like the first deal I did was Laurel Wolf. And of course that from the very beginning was like a huge winner. And then I did this thing called the wars boring. That was essentially a spinoff from medium. You know, I still don't know what Ed Williams is doing with medium, but they had bought all these sites and then just like literally siphoned them off when they decided to change the strategy. And they don't want to own like publications anymore. Mm-hmm. So I basically bought like 49% of it. Uh, the founder is just like, I'd just say he's a rascal of sorts, but I have a lot of respect for him. He's incredible, very tenacious. And I guess, you know, he's doing what he needs to do. So good, good for him. But long story short, that was while turbulent. Um, we sold that for like, I don't know, three times our money or something like five months later. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's not exactly a VC level return, but like, hey. If I could like triple my money in five months, I would yeah. I would take it. So I had this like really skewed idea of what my angel investing career yeah, is going to be like. You, I mean, you started off really, yeah. really well. Well, let me just say this. Now that I've done like over 40 investments, I've realized like, no, it doesn't work like that. Um, you have a lot of face plants. I mean, a lot. I want to emphasize that. So the reality is that um, if you're investing at my scale, you should be worried. And honestly, if you're investing at a smaller scale, you should be worried. And what I mean by that is that it's a risk and you got to treat it like that. You will, in fact, lose most of your money in most investments. And I guess the only advice I can give you is that whether it's 500 or 50,000, it's just like a difference in like situation. So you should put like the same level of diligence that you would like um, that anyone would like mm-hmm. with any amount of money. And you just got to develop that skill set because as your career evolves, whether you're an associate or a principal or partner to VC firm or an entrepreneur that ends up investing their own money, I think it's good to develop good habits like sooner than later. So I would encourage anyone that's like um, considering an investment in seed invest or, um, you know, Republic or anything like that to just be diligent about it and just be realistic with themselves and assume that 70% of the time it will return zero. For sure. And, uh, you know, not to sound like a financial advisor or anything, but like it goes, it's the same with like any investment opportunity. You should really know what you're doing, um, you know, and, uh, definitely, uh, when, when the crypto boom came, a lot of people out there were, you know, didn't actually know what they were doing. You know, I was actually one of them, you know, I got in, uh, right actually when, when we first met, mm-hmm. um, which was last, uh, two summers ago, mm-hmm. um, when, when I was, uh, interning at Rumi and, and you were my manager there. So, um, yeah, just to stem off of that, uh, you're currently working at a, um, at carbon, you know, we said it was like a stable coin crypto company. Can you kind of explain to us, uh, to everyone out there, you know, what a stable coin is and why, um, like, why is that like in, in the market and in existence sure. right now? Yeah. Stable coins. I mean, like a lot of crypto concepts are like very, very compelling, but also not only misunderstood commonly, but, you know, to some extent could even be overblown in some respects. So what a stablecoin really is, has been positioned as aggressively as the holy grail of crypto. And in plain English, uh, ultimately the best way to think about it is that it's a stable crypto asset mm-hmm. that is a good way to store value. And so what that means in plain English is that, making this up, but let's say I invested in Monero. I'm some sort of wheeler and dealer and I'm doing trading. I'm, I'm cashing in and out of Binance and Coinbase, you name it. And let's just say I managed a book over the course of one month, like 30%. Or more recently, Bitcoin Cash, which I think appreciated like 100%. Um, I probably don't like the odds of like those gains like staying. Yeah. So I want to figure out a way to like, you know, trade that in. So what I can basically do is um, exchange that for a stable coin and basically use that to settle and uh, just hold on to. In other words, I know that that's going to be pegged to a dollar. Um, I guess I know is a strong word, but it's <laughs> supposed to be pegged to a dollar um, in, in most cases. And it'll kind of like be stable and, and like hold its value. 
So it's a good way, especially for active traders, both at the individual and institutional level, to kind of uh, store gains and also denominate transactions in a way that people can understand. So um, as an example of that, take CryptoKitties. Most people are familiar with that, but at its core level, they're selling collectibles, you know, like these intangible goods and stuff that are priced typically in Ethereum. What I can't understand for the life of me is like, why? You know, in other words, like it's fine to accept ETH, I get it. But who wants to do that when like some days ETH is like at $100 yeah. and just last summer it was like over $1,000, right? It's too volatile. So the reality is you could accept ETH, but you could also accept it um, in stable coins as well. And like I think a lot of people feel more comfortable making transactions in that and they can basically convert, you know, their cryptocurrency into that. So it's effectively a good on off ramp from fiat to crypto and back yeah. and forth. So what are like the specific advantages uh, then? From going something like Bitcoin to a stablecoin like Carbon, what would be the advantage of doing that over just, you know, going fiat and, you know, cashing out essentially and then maybe just keeping like that money in like a brokerage account as, sure. as American, like or whatever U.S., uh, whatever like dollar um, it is? There's a lot of use cases, but like I'll give you for, I'll first I'll start with like trading. A lot of times trades, you know, whether it happens in Singapore, or the U.S. are settled in, in dollars and that's great. But, you know, banks were only open five days a week and mm-hmm. over business hours. So literally, as crazy as it sounds, like, let's say you need to execute something or move money in- instantaneously, you really can't. Where on the flip side, stable coins, when you strip away all the BS and all the hype, they're essentially governed by smart contracts, the same way carbon is. And you can basically do that almost any time. Yeah. Could you explain so, what a smart contract like exactly is? Sure. Um, they're written in different, like, you know, for, for different blockchains. But a smart contract is essentially like a you know, basically programmed preconditions that automate certain types of behavior. So as an example of that, like if I'm going to deposit or submit like money to Carbon, which is functionally going to actually go through our bank partner, Prime Trust, um, they in turn, based on the smart contract, on an automated basis, mint tokens that are now worth a dollar and that are backed by your deposit of American dollars. So the reality is smart contracts I would stop short of saying they're going to eliminate lawyers. I don't think they will. Although some pundits like like Anthony Pomp, yeah, you know, <laughs> uh, like like claims that, but they do actually they do at least minimize like transactional fees, including waste. And I would say that that's a good development. So that's not just specific to stable coins. It's specific to almost any project out in the market. They're governed essentially by like really badass engineers that are basically developing smart contracts. Gotcha. Yeah, and right now um, we're we're kind of in this weird period where we ha- we saw this crypto boom, um, kind yeah. of when it exploded. You know, no one really knew what was going on, and now that it's you know slowly kind of not I don't want to say it's faded out, but a lot of the hype is gone. Sure. Um, and That's now fair. yeah, and now you know a lot of people who didn't know much about the space in the beginning are you know, now assuming, yeah, you know, I lost some money. This thing is like a scam. It's a sham. Like this is not going to go anywhere. Um, but of course, you know, the, the projects that are the ones that are actually going to succeed long-term are just like now being started or now being worked on. What do you see as um, kind of for, from Carbon's perspective, what do you see as like the long-term goal for, uh, for you guys, for stable coins? And then what do you see as um, more of like the long-term what do you think is going to happen to to all like the big kind of crypto players um, that we all kind of know about right now? Yeah, so the whole hype cycle is pretty tough. I mean, in the sense that like, I mean, taking Carbon's example, you know, the team is like a team of like nine people now full time. Um, I'm literally the only non-technical member of the team, meaning that I'm the only one that doesn't like code or classify as, as technical, I guess. But the reality is that we've just had our heads down building something that we think is very worthwhile. We have a very specific strategy that we're executing well, and we're going to be tested on in these next two quarters. But the reality is that behind us, you know, we have a lot of people, both the institutional and the retail level, that have been burned, I guess. Um, and, and whether they're fa- it's their fault or not, or their responsibilities, kind of besides the point, I think hype has died down. But, but worse than that, there's almost like a reticence, maybe in the side of investors to like get behind projects. And I think partly it's because whether they admitted it or not, they were probably judging and evaluating investments on the wrong criteria. So it wasn't really about, are these founders capable of scaling a company and kind of working through challenges and just diligently shipping code and executing? Instead, it was more like, all right, it's worth this. Is it going to like 10x in a year or two? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's valid. We're all human. We're all going to think of that. But the reality is that that's never really been about about it. 
and uh, people that chased, you know, altcoins or shitcoins, whatever you want to call them, um, kind of got just desserts. And I don't mean that in a mean spirit way. I do feel bad for people that are hurt. Um, and I have some stuff too in, in my portfolio that are that are way down. But you know, the reality is just peaks and valleys. You know, I've been invested in um, the crypto space since 2014 with Bitcoin, um, based on the recommendation of a friend of mine, Brock Pierce, who's you know one of the biggest names in, in the whole crypto game. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was like $200 back then. So, yeah, it sucks that it's like no longer 20000 But I'm taking the long view. Um, I'm not quite as smart, I guess, as he is. And I didn't cash out a ton in January. But the reality is I'm still taking like a longish view that I think in the long term, certain assets at least will appreciate um, way over the high water marks that we saw in the beginning of 2018. So it just depends on perspective. I think like... Crypto is not quite as liquid as people think, unless you're using like a stablecoin, which is not really built for speculative purposes. Mm -hmm. So the reality is that people have to like really acclimate themselves towards what this is and what this isn't. And I think to this day, like a lot of people are still very confused as to like where crypto stands versus traditional asset classes and certainly startup investments. Yeah, I mean, some people definitely be confused as to why like this is a crypto company that isn't going to skyrocket in, in like the price of the token where yeah. well, that's actually the, the exact point. Um, and then one, one other thing is actually like how, so how would you guys really make money? Um, yeah, I can, I can through, that. through a stable coin. Like, is it transaction fees and things like that? Yeah. So, you know, I, I told you earlier, like, you know, um, basically I have, I have a friend that's, you know, been in China for a while and uh, she's back in town and, you know, we were talking and she was asking when she could invest in, in carbon and I think what she meant is that um you know she wanted to invest like in you know the coin market cap way. In other words, what exchange can I buy it in? And just based on the question and how it's phrased, I could kind of tell like this isn't the right fit. Meaning that while she's obviously comfortable with risk, the whole concept here is that it's pegged to the dollar. Yeah. Meaning that it really shouldn't be very volatile at all. In fact, we do our own market making primarily like in a very automated type fashion with obviously intervention from some of our folks on the team. But I guess to your point, people get very confused because they're just like, I don't get it. If it's a dollar, like how the hell does this actually like accumulate value? And that's a great question. So one of the ways that we're accumulating value that's very basic on the business model side is that when we mint tokens, our bank partner mints tokens um, because someone decides I need COSD to be able to use, um, that's deposited. And Prime Trust, the trust company in Nevada, actually deposits that in partner banks in the U.S., in FDIC insured accounts. Mm-hmm. So let's just say like US Bank, which is an actual partner of theirs, they deposit let's a million dollars of, you know, uh, the million dollars that are backing essentially CUSD. Um, we get a certain float on that. In other words, a percentage of the basis, and that's one of the ways that we make money. In the future, one of the things that we're really focusing on is a product called Carbon Fiber. And what this product actually is, is a modular fiat on off ramp. I know at first it sounds kind of dry, but what that really means in plain English is that we've worked very hard on both our technology and compliance stack. And that basically means we're compliant with like U.S. uh, banking laws, which are global and extremely difficult to like navigate. And as a result of that, if I'm an exchange making this up, but like in Iceland or someplace, and I've made a decision for any number of reasons, probably both technical and legal, to not accept American dollars meaning that I'll sell you altcoins, mm-hmm. but you need to pay me probably in ETH or Bitcoin. We can actually partner with them and say like, hey, um, Mr. Viking, um, why don't you integrate with just a few lines of code, carbon fiber? You will now have a modular you know, fiat on-ramp that will allow people to pay in CUSD, essentially dollars. So once they actually plug in their bank account, they can basically send CUSD, which is carbon usd our, our stable coin mm-hmm. within seconds wow. and we're essentially broadening the marketplace for people because even me like i'm crypto savvy although i'm not super technical and to this day i'm still very uncomfortable with all sorts of stuff from custody to other other things i hate going to binance and i hate it at least when i did it buying stuff in like bitcoin or ethereum yeah. you know it's just a pain in the ass and so i think the core use of stable coins is just to make things simpler and one of those is just to be able to essentially to use the dollars through a crypto asset. And that's essentially what we're doing. For sure. And is there like a larger plan to go past the USD, maybe incorporating like other world yeah. currencies? Yeah. So right now, CUSD is one-to-one backed with the US dollar. Mm-hmm. And that means that our our deposits in our, in our bank account 
will always be either larger or equal to the circulation of CUSD. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we do monthly attestations to prove that. But so essentially make sure that like there's always enough money that if if everyone mm-hmm. kind of needs it back, kind of like what a bank does in, in a way. Yep. Okay. To make sure that it's actually there. That's a, that's a big concern of many people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we basically want to pursue other foreign currencies because we know there's demand for it. You know, we're talking to different parties in Canada and well, that's not probably a priority for us now. Uh, a euro is. We want to do a euro-backed um, stablecoin. We think that's something that could be like really compelling and very interesting. We've actually received that feedback to that effect. Um, we think there's other opportunities as well in, in Asia and potentially even the Caribbean to do something similar. And uh, we want to give people an opportunity to make decisions for themselves that are appropriate. So as an example, when I said, you know, U.S. banking is global, it's a real policy decision that the Obama administration made for better or for worse. Um, and it basically says that I can be in Malaysia and uh, not a citizen of the U.S., but if I have a product or a company or bank that is now accepting U.S. dollars, I'm subject to like U.S. banking laws. And so a lot of people just make the decision, not for anything bad or even shady, they just make a decision that they don't want to spend uh, the amount on money they probably need to on compliance and legal to be in tune with the very strict U.S. banking laws, mm-hmm. both for, you know, the terrorism purposes and money laundering, they're extreme. So as a result of that, um, we offer solutions that I think help. And on the flip side, if someone still doesn't want to be subject at all to like any product that's tied to the U.S. dollar, that's where I think um, a, a, a stablecoin backed by other types of foreign currency could be helpful. And we're aware of that. And we want to be helpful there, too. Gotcha. And then what do you think is going to be the long-term relationship between, you know, companies like yours and, and governments? You know, wh- what do you think governments think of yeah. a, a company like a stablecoin? Are a they pro question. it? Are they against it? Are they kind of neutral? Because, like, what what do you think their point of view is? And where does it have to be for this to kind of expand to the point where, you know, it's, it's commonplace and everyone's really using it? So not just carbon. It's a, it's a, that's a good, like, just crypto at large question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just went to... Um, a, a conference in Washington D.C., which is awesome because it was it was called Block Change, kind of a dumb <laughs> name, but whatever. Anyways, um, it was half political and half like operator slash investors. And what I mean by that is that there were literally congressmen, ironically enough, mostly from red states, that were talking about opening up, um, you know, uh, basically the regulatory framework to empower like Americans to really build and scale crypto companies. Because they're a big concern. The word that kept being thrown around the most is China. Mm-hmm. And um, while they have their own issues with crypto, they're just afraid that innovation could go elsewhere. Both Americans leaving to start companies and foreign countries or just foreign companies just being more crypto friendly. And we're seeing that slowly happening in places like the Philippines, ironically, and even Singapore. And so, you know, that's a risk. But I guess what I'm trying to get at is that, like, I think we do need to work more hand in hand with, with government agencies to make sure that we're building products in a way that, you know, are satisfying and decentralized, but at the same time, like, still in compliance with U.S. law. Um, so it's challenging, but that's essentially the background of what's happening right now. Gotcha. Yeah, it is kind of, it is a crazy time, um, especially with, like, the trade uh, war stuff going on. Yeah. Um, you know, no one really no one really knows exactly what's happening there. Uh, we just know that things with China are, are, you know, escalating pretty quickly, and, you know, it, it does make sense that it's kind of been building up for a while so mm-hmm. um to go along with your point like we definitely want to be as competitive as we can with mm-hmm. with other nations um just because you know developing countries are growing so much faster than we are and it's yeah they are and they I can mean, pass us you know they have way more people to that and just to add like um my two cents to that comment you made like i'm an american you know so i'm bullish on america but i mean <laughs> like there's a lot of problems right now but nonetheless i'm still like a fan mm-hmm. here but most of my money recently um, has been going to um, companies in Southeast Asia, both okay, wow. in, at the fund level and also at, in the, at the startup level. And, you know, it's just to that end. I think legislation there is like, you know, pretty, pretty open. They're becoming more entrepreneur friendly. And more importantly, the growth rates are just there. So obviously, when people think about not only crypto, but startups in general, they're going to talk about China. Clearly, they're going to talk about South Korea. And they're going to talk about Japan. But the markets that I'm really kind of focused on are Malaysia. Indonesia, Thailand, and then to a lesser extent, Vietnam. Um, I don't know. I'd hesitate to say it's a future because those are, you know, Indonesia's very populated, but the other one's not as much. 
but nonetheless, that's where the growth is. And I've been very kind of pleased with some of the early successes of those investments. For sure. And mm-hmm. say everyone out there who's like listening wants to now, you know, check those places out and potentially make investments. Like what, you know, how could someone go about doing that? Like, I'm guessing you have deep connections in those areas. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe not. Yeah, it's a combination of things. So it's like I, I said before, like I think one of my best kind of deal flow outlets come from other investors. So over the years, through a variety of ways, I've made uh, friendships with um, either folks who have funds out there or alternatively um, are based here, but for whatever reason have like another arm or initiative to like invest in those categories. And, you know, I always want to make things sound inclusive because they are at the end of the day, like opportunity is like is, is available to anyone. Talent's universal. But I have to admit that, you know, after I sold the company, I did a ton of travel and I reconnected with friends from college in addition to also um, friends I'd worked with early in my career. And they happened to be in places like Thailand and Malaysia and Indonesia. And then I also recognized the business opportunity and was reading just like as much as I didn't like being a management consultant, at least back then. um, I uh, read the reports quite a bit. And I know that Bain had this like report that I got my hands on that just talked about what was going on there mm-hmm. and it just made sense to me it resonated and for whatever reason I think part of it's like the Trump and Trump thing and the general atmosphere in the US but I know a lot of young people that are kind of coming to school in the United States um, graduating from great places or you know working their butts off but then instead of staying um, they're going back and they're starting companies and I think that's that's a big reason why I think you're seeing so much growth in these emerging markets yeah yeah for sure it's super interesting um because traditionally i think it's been like the other way around uh where people kind of come to the state yeah. study and then just stay here because of all the opportunity and you know in a way you know like you said you are an american i'm an american and obviously want this country to do mm-hmm. the best and, and do really well but it, it is good on like a global scale to see other countries really um just doing well developing because eventually you know as the world you know we get more connected it becomes smaller and smaller yeah. and you know it's just better for us if if all the countries around around the world are, are exceeding. So um, I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's really interesting, like just to see what happens in like the next like 10, 20, 30 years, like how much, uh, how connected we can all get. Um, I don't know. I think I personally, actually, I think that's pretty cool. And like people like Elon Musk and there's gonna be like a neural network. So mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe like it'll be, it'll be super close, but, uh, but you never know. Yeah, and as, as we kind of wind this down, I want to really thank you, David. Mm-hmm. This was super awesome. It was, it was really insightful to kind of hear your story, um, you know, kind of three parts, you know, as an entrepreneur, um, starting this thing is, you know, really the first thing that, that you've done. You did it yourself for the most part. Um, no investment, no, no like, significant outside investment at least. Yeah, just to, you know, clarify that, like, um, yeah, the only investment we had was a secondary investment, but that was specifically to buy out, um, you know, my CFOs, CFO, COO, uh, stake because he had a medical situation luckily he ended up being okay but you know he, he, would, he had to go in for major surgery so that money went to him but didn't go to the company and then the one thing i will emphasize though when i said i had to make the opportunity for myself i meant like in terms of you know comedy.com you know their situation wasn't great so i had to basically make my own play but when i started giant um while i did drive it initially i had a great team over the years mm-hmm. and I, that's one point i want to make i mean i think you know this but just so the audience knows, I mean, I think Americans a little bit have a tendency to be a little too John Wayne, you know, where they take too much credit and um, they think they can do everything alone. At the end of the day, you have to be accountable. And I think that's a good aspect of American culture, but the media and just the hype sometimes gets to people's head. And I can tell you that all the best entrepreneurs just rely very, very heavily on um, their team. They try to get people that are extremely motivated, not just by the financial incentives, but the mission and the culture. And, um, we definitely had that a giant, like, again, not to throw any stones or like, you know, bite the hand that, that, that fed me at least, but the company that acquired us, you know, ad knowledge, great company with like a brilliant, brilliant founder. And they had incredible people too, but the culture was very different. It was like more mercenary and it was very much driven by the times that company was built on the thesis that the internet was going to fragment, meaning that there'd be a lot of sites or a lot of places where people would accumulate. And in fact, as brilliant as the founder was, it just was wrong. It ended up being the opposite. You know, in other words, it consolidated. It's like huge platforms. And even ones that aren't huge, like Pinterest, are still pretty damn big. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no way around it. Yeah. And that's where the ad dollars went. It's so actually crazy to see also, like, mm-hmm. just the way you look at it now, and it's like the biggest players, Facebook, uh, Google, yeah. like just 
it's crazy that, and a lot of people have been talking about this, crazy how we've gone so far and yeah. there have been so many companies, but it all comes back to just a few major players. Uh, and for better or for worse, that's, you know, it's how it is, but we are starting to see like a lot of the, the positives and the negatives of, of that being the case. I agree, but, you know, just to tie it back to the, to the point I was making, like, you know, positives, negatives for sure, but at the end of the day, when your business um, faces challenges, um, even hardships, and it's inevitable because every business does, especially startups, um, all you have is other people, you know, that's basically true in life as well. And if you don't have a culture where people feel rewarded and respected, um, you know, when the shit is a fan, as they say, your company is dead. And by extension, you will. So even if you're like a selfish person, and we all are selfish to some extent, right? Um, it'll it'll kill you in the end. And I can name like literally a dozen companies right now off the top of my head that were driven by founders that were just like insane with like um, ambition, which is fine, but just did not believe in sharing awards, didn't really give a damn and very open about about that in terms of like their workforce and they paid the price. Um, and that sucks because I think honestly in some of those cases, while most startups do fail, it might have been avoidable if they had a more motivated team. Yeah, and I think... That's actually a really great way to uh, to wrap this up. That's it's such a it's such a critical point that, like you said, most people don't focus on. Like they focus on like what they can do, you know, their ability, everything they're doing, and like sometimes you have to step back and realize that you know, I don't want to <laughs> be so cliche, but it takes like a village to like raise a kid or like that yeah. kind of uh, that kind of mentality is, is just very true. Um, so yeah, it's it's great that you mentioned it. And uh, for everyone out there who who wants to like connect with you, what's like the best uh, medium to do that and and um, like your uh, social profiles, things like that, just kind of sure. Put There's it out a few. There. Um, the easiest way of doing it is, I guess, through LinkedIn, and I do look through that. I, I'm in LinkedIn constantly, so my name is you know David Segura, and that's just spelled David S E G U R A. Uh, feel free to add me, um, and I'm more than happy to chat. And then on a, a social level, if you're trying to see what I'm up to, um, you <laughs> can you post a lot. Yeah. <laughs> You can follow me on Instagram at dseg10, so D-S-E-G-1-0. And I respond there, too, to messages. A lot of people write me, um, mostly for business, surprisingly, on Instagram. Yeah. I probably get about 300 emails a day between, or communications between mm-hmm. Instagram, LinkedIn, and email. And I get through them, and um, sometimes I use digital assistants if things are getting really crazy or I'm traveling, so, um, so I can actually vet them because you never know. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there'd be a great opportunity where, like, I think now I'm just reaching out to people on Instagram all the time, yeah. um, especially with, like the podcast and stuff. And it's just very, it's normal, you know. Maybe a few years ago it would have been weird, but but now it's um, just the way it is. Totally normal, yeah. Cool. Well, thank you again, David. This was awesome. Really appreciate you uh, taking your time and um, and doing this. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for stopping by. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, go rate and subscribe to the podcast. Even share it with your friends if you found the lessons valuable. We do the show every week, so stay tuned for more episodes. And till next time.